Our economy is trapped in a vicious cycle. The turmoil on Wall Street means a new round of belt tightening for families and businesses on Main Street. And as folks produce less and consume less, that just deepens the problems in our financial markets. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I am Alex Bloomberg. Today is Monday, November 24th. It is 4.15 p.m. That's right. And uh, it's the first day of uh, the week where we're trying something a little new, right, Adam? Yeah, we decided at least for a little while to try out this idea of having a theme each week. Um, Alex, you work at This American Life. You, I've heard of that. You've heard, heard of that, that idea. Um, just to kind of focus our coverage and collect a bunch of stories and ideas around that theme. theme. And maybe Although bring we them won't to you. invite a variety of artists. And... Right. Anyway, so Check this week's theme, our very first theme is What is Money? What is Money? What is Money? Alex, you were, you were just saying, and, and I totally agree, and David Kestenbaum was saying, it is weird how often in this job that question comes up. Right. You, you're, you're reporting on something that you think is absolutely just you know, sort of straightforward, and then you think – and then you get to some sort of naughty problem, and you're like, I guess it sort of depends on how you define money. And then you're thinking, what is money anyway? It really comes up a lot. And money, as we will learn this week, is is not such a simple thing. It's a weird, shimmery thing that, that changes and – the amount of it and the value of any piece of it is changing constantly uh, right before our eyes. But right. but more on that later. Right. Let's uh, get to some news. Um, the big news is yeah. – Well, the big news today is that um, Citibank has gotten a bailout from, from the U.S. government, a stock injection of $20 billion, and the U.S. government has um, – Helped it with more than three hundred billion in debt. So, what do you have to I'm, say about this? I'm tired of doing this story over and over and over again. Can we just play like <laughs> yeah, the last we, fourteen times? <laughs> exactly. Another bank needs money, and the government uh, is giving it to them to yeah. the tune of twenty billion dollars this time. The which seems like sort of small potatoes, frankly. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, fundamental architecture of our economy has changed yet again. Big whoop, hey, but but there, that does bring us to the, uh, a the a Planet Money indicator. Yeah, what um, is our Planet Money indicator today? The Planet Money indicator is one point two trillion, which is the uh, amount of money that is in the Citibank off balance sheet entity. Um, which is, I was reading all these stories. That's the that's the number that caught my eye. I was thinking. $1.2 trillion. And then I thought, what's an off-balance sheet entity? turns out I'm not alone. We've gotten um, a lot of mail on this. Gotten a lot of mail on this. Uh, one one listener wrote in uh, asking, will you please help me understand how assets and liabilities can be off-balance sheet? Also, conversely, what is prompting firms such as City to bring them back onto their balance sheet? Um, those are all very good questions. We don't have answers for you today, but we were, we were trying to dig them up. But we, Adam, you have some experience with um, the off-balance sheet world, right? Yeah, I, I did some stories on it a few months ago and, and, and looked into it. And, and the shorthand, and we'll, we'll get into this more later in the week, but the shorthand is a, a company has a bunch of things that it doesn't – a company can create another company, basically a fictitious company. And what they do is usually they'll call a law firm or an accounting firm down in the Cayman Islands. They do this because of the – you know, the laws in the Cayman Islands are really friendly. And they'll say, hey, can you create a company for us? And so they'll create a company. 
Now, this company isn't like other companies. It doesn't have a building. It doesn't. It has like one or two employees who happen to work at like Citibank or whatever company created this new fictitious company. I mean, really, this company lives in a folder in a lawyer's office somewhere in the Cayman Islands. Right. And and what's interesting to me, or one of the things that's interesting, is the way the Cayman Island laws work is just a lot easier for the companies, and it just solves a lot of problems if they create this new company as a charitable trust. So you can almost guarantee that Citibank's $1.2 trillion is being held by something that has a name, something like, I'm just making this up, a charitable trust for research into diabetes or a charitable trust to prevent childhood leukemia or something like that. It seems like $1.2 trillion could really solve that problem. Well, the, yeah. the thing is these charitable trusts own $1.2 trillion, but they also usually have claims on the one. Anyway, yeah, right. basically it's... what happens is the charity that they're talking about gets like five grand or ten grand. Right. Uh, they don't get... One point two trillion. It's just so funny when you when you, and I've been calling around and trying to find out an answer for for you, which which we will get to late, which later in the week we will we will try to bring to you in more fuller detail. But but basically, in my preliminary conversations, people say you can't you don't really know what's in one point two trillion of what you have no idea really. It's pretty opaque. Um, it's just if they happen to issue some security and they have to li- give a prospectus, but they don't necessarily have to do that. And even right. if they do, the prospectus might. Be vague. It might be unclear. Right. It, yeah. So there's a, there's 1.2 trillion of, of something somewhere, um, but it's probably in the name of a charitable trust. But every time you talk about it, Adam, it just makes it seem like more and more mysterious and 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 possibly nefarious. So we will try to figure out if it actually right. is. Now nefarious the other or question just sounds that way. So there was some more news today, uh, in addition to that, which was that uh, President-elect Obama has named Tim Geithner the current president of the New York Fed to be his treasury secretary. So pending congressional approval, Tim Geithner uh, will officially, we heard the rumor and reported it on Friday, but now it's official, Tim Geithner will be the new treasury secretary. Right. And so what does that mean exactly? Do we, you know, what are we supposed to think about that? Are we supposed to think anything about it? Like, does it really matter? Um, You know, who is this guy? Who is this how guy? Do we right? pick, how do we get our head around this new guy who's going to play such a huge role in, in our economy? Right. Um, and Laura Conway um, uh, reached out. She wanted to know this question, too. She reached out to Eric Rauschway, an economic historian at the University of California, Davis. He just published this short history of the Great Depression. And he says that Geithner sort of makes him think of FDR's first Treasury Secretary back in the Great Depression, Henry Morgenthau Jr., who who was known as a real pragmatist. Right. And Rashway says that Geithner isn't – he's not like a creature of politics and he's not a creature of Wall Street or of academia. He's sort of – he's like – he's a civil servant with a background in international relations. So anyway, Rashway is looking at Geithner and uh, President-elect Obama's other – economic team members like Larry Summers, and, and it it's all reminding him. It's feeling very familiar to what he sees when he studies the Great Depression. And a, and a, and a certain very famous economist. You know, you know what the, a lot of them make me think of? Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, a while back, uh, said, you know, maybe slightly tongue-in-cheek, because after all, Keynes himself did like the limelight, that he looked forward to the day when economics would be like dentistry. 
and it would be something where there wasn't a lot of politics involved and it would just be sort of something where you wanted somebody who was purely competent. Um, these may be the Keynesian dentists going forward. That's great. I love that. What an interesting idea. My, my economic tooth hurts. Yeah, well, I think we all are probably in need of a root canal, I'm afraid. Yeah, I think we're going to get it. Yeah. That was, uh, that was historian uh, Eric Rashway talking to um, Planet Money's own Laura Conway. And uh, we'll link to his new book on the Great Depression on our blog, npr.org slash money. So, Alex, this week being our What is Money Week, uh, I was very happy to see that someone named Neil Ferguson was coming into our offices today. I actually noticed this, and then I had to run um, and meet someone for lunch. Uh, I, I called Neil Ferguson's publicist. And then I called you and said, hey, I'm at lunch. Can you interview this guy? Now, why would I have said that? <laughs> <laughs> because, well, it, uh, because in a week when we're doing, when our theme is what is money, uh, Neil Ferguson is the author of The Ascent of Money. And he's also a professor of history at Harvard University. Um, and he's written and thought a lot about this very question, what is money? Um, and it's sort of a complicated the, the the problem with doing an interview like this is it's just sort of you can't just start in and say so, Professor Ferguson, what is money? So I so I started I started concrete and then we got to the actual existential questions. There's 13 trillion dollars worth of assets in in U.S. banks, according to the FDIC website. Does that mean that there's 13 trillion dollars? Not quite. Okay. Since uh, those assets are the loans uh-huh. that banks make to their customers. Uh, including us if we borrow money from them. Whereas technically, when we talk about money, we're really referring to the other side of banks' balance sheets, the liabilities side. Uh, And the liabilities of a bank are the deposits that you and I uh, make at the bank, current accounts, and in some cases, uh, savings accounts. So that's the money. It's the the liabilities, not the assets of the bank you need to look at. So you're saying to, to a bank, I'm a liability. Well, this is confusing to many people because right. they imagine that, that it should be the other way around. You would think that the bank would like me. I'm taking all my hard-earned money right. and giving it to the bank. But it is a liability it. of the bank to give you that money back when you want it. With Whereas, where, Right. Whereas mm-hmm. the assets, the loans that the bank makes to people, that's the bank's money and they collect the interest on that. So when you think about it from the bank's point of view, it makes perfect sense. The assets are the things that earn you interest and the liabilities are the things that you as a bank have to pay interest on. Uh, in some cases, of course, that doesn't apply to current accounts. Which which don't generally speaking pay interest. Okay, so so it's not so 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 when one of the things in trying to answer this question, what is money anyway, that you run up against is that is that the 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 regular person on the ground, you know, drawing a salary, saving money, trying to buy something with it, they have very one very clear conception of money. Money is something. Money is dollars that you earn, you save, and then you. Then you once you've saved enough, you can purchase something with it. But when you start venturing into the reaches of you know finance ministers and senior vice presidents of banks, they have a whole different understanding of money than than that. It, it, and, and have you found that? And, and can you sort of tell what that difference is? Well, when I was writing The Ascent of Money, I, I did want to go back to first principles mm-hmm. and try and understand money in a way that I could explain to my nine-year-old son. Right. And so I, I really did go back to the very origins of money in ancient Mesopotamia, long before there were such things as finance ministers and, and central bankers. Uh-huh. And I remember having a eureka moment in the British Museum, holding 
a 4,000-year-old clay tablet which had engraved on it, promise to pay the bearer a certain amount of wheat on a certain date. And it was that phrase, promise to pay the bearer, that brought me up short because that appears on banknotes in all parts of the English-speaking world. And I thought, wait that a second, a, that's money. Oh, sorry. Well, it's money in the sense that money is really any token that people will accept in payment for goods or services. I think many people still naively think of money in terms of banknotes and coins, mm-hmm. the stuff you have in your, in your wallet or in your pocket. Uh, but, but that's actually not quite right. Most of the money in our system today is bank money, uh, and we can't actually see it. We just assume it's there. We assume that when we take out our plastic card and put it in the ATM, some of our money will come popping out. And we kind of assume that if we wanted all the money, that too would come popping out. But it's not quite true. Uh, the thing about it is that most of the money we deposited in the bank isn't there at all. It's been lent out. That's what banks do. They take our money as a deposit and they lend it out uh, as a loan. So the key thing here is trust. From ancient Mesopotamia right down to the present day, we essentially trust in tokens. The piece of plastic is not that different from the clay tablet 4,000 years ago. It's a little promise. It says, I'll pay you the money I owe you when you need it. Mm-hmm. And I'll pay the bearer, whoever's holding this plastic or this clay. So money, I suddenly realized, this was the eureka moment, is a relationship. It's a relationship between a creditor and a debtor, between a lender and a borrower, crystallized in some tangible object in a relationship that is based on trust. And anything in that sense can be money. Money, in fact, mostly today is invisible. We just believe the banks have our money. And when we stop believing that, when trust breaks down, you get that most awful of things, a bank run. Right, in which we find that actually they might not have all our money. (laughs) They don't, because fractional reserve banking means that most of the money isn't there. If all the customers simultaneously try to withdraw their money, the bank can't possibly pay. Mm -hmm. So we, we, we live in a system in which a kind of confidence trick is perpetrated that is literally based on our confidence. And when we lose confidence in banks, as we've seen in the last 15 months, the results are really quite terrifying. If we stop thinking the money's there, as I remember feeling with respect to my bank account at Washington Mutual, I, I stopped believing that they actually had the money. So I went and got all the money while I still could. That's the kind of psychology that causes not only banks to fail or to require to be bailed out, but it causes, paradoxically, the money supply to contract. If we all rush to take the money out and banks start to fail, then the money literally begins to vanish, or rather our trust in it vanishes. And that's really the key thing to understand. Money, whatever we do, whatever we make it out of, whether it's plastic or clay or gold or silver, it, it's essentially these are tokens. These uh-huh. are tokens of relationships between creditors and debtors. And it seems to me that's the key difference maybe when you're talking to somebody who works in banking or works in finance and when you're talking to somebody who doesn't. Those of us who don't, they th- we think money is money. Money is a physical object that you, you, it can, it can be accumulate, it can, it can – you know, it can sort of drift away, but there's always a thing. Whereas those who work in banking, that's why you hear all this talk about confidence. The system doesn't have any confidence because they realize, to me, that sounds sort of like BS a little bit just because I'm like, well, what? either it's there or it's not. But it's it's not BS. It actually is true that money is simply the confidence that the money is there. Right. 
Because the way it's that banks a- work, the way that banks work is essentially that they, they take money in and pay one rate on it or as little as possible on it as possible and they lend it out and collect as much as possible on it. And the spread between these interest rates is, is the most important profit in the banking system. Th- this takes me back to a book I wrote 10 years ago about the Rothschild family, one of the most successful banking families in all history. And there was a wonderful moment in one of the Rothschild letters I, I came across when one of the young Rothschilds asked, where is the money? Uh, and he wanted to see it all piled up in a heap <laughs> because in his imagination, yes, the money was just a huge pile of coins. That was really Scrooge how he understood right. right. And yeah. so, and, and the older Rothschilds found this very amusing because, of course, they knew that most of the money that the bank uh, claimed to own and indeed the family claimed to own existed in ledger form or in pieces of paper that were, were bonds or stocks. Money broadly defined, can include all kinds of forms of wealth. When we say somebody's net worth is $100 million, that doesn't mean that there's an enormous pile of dollar bills somewhere in that person's uh, safe. It means that they have assets with a net worth, if you subtract their liabilities, of $100 million. And that's, that's really the kind of concept that people struggle with. Right. And even if you do start thinking about, once you realize that, once you realize this thing, that, that, that this idea that money isn't permanent, that there is no such thing as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a permanent store of value and that value is just sort of what the world assigns to anything. Um, it's, very, it's very dislocating. It start, you start to realize that like, oh, this is, this is why all these people who manage all this money are so nervous all the time. They have to, they don't, like a bond might be worth this much today, but then, you know, what about if tomorrow everybody's like, we, we don't like that bond or we don't think that person's going right. to pay the, back the bond and then, it just it can just sort of dramatically lose its value. The textbooks say that money is uh, a unit of account and a store of value. But in practice, it's not really either of these things. At least it's a pretty poor unit of account and store of value because its value is constantly changing in relation to the goods and services we, we may want to buy. Right. Uh, think of it this way. I think it was in 1957 that the present design of the US $1 bill was introduced. They didn't look quite like that before. Now, since that time, the purchasing power of a dollar bill has declined by, I think I'm right in saying, 87 or 88%. So these things with, you know, in, in God we trust inscribed on them and all these wonderful hieroglyphics that are supposed to connote the power of the state, you know, the all-seeing eye, the, the various things from the great seal of the United States, these are symbols that are supposed to reassure us that this really is a store of value. Uh, and actually, it's not. I mean, inflation since 1957, and particularly since uh, the breakdown of, of what remained of the gold standard, the Bretton Woods system in the early 1970s, inflation has eaten up a huge amount of the purchasing power. Of, of paper money. And so this brings us to the next point. If you were to sit on a pile of cash and regard that as the best possible way of holding uh, your wealth, you'd get killed because with every passing year, its purchasing power declines because of inflation and you don't collect any interest because it's a pile of cash. Mm-hmm. The smart thing is to take that pile of cash and turn it into something that will either pay you a return or even better, pay you a return and appreciate in value, appreciate relative to our friend money. And that's really the whole key. You take the cash and you want to decide what's, what's the best bet. Is it stocks? Do you want to have a piece of, uh, uh, of, of, of Citibank? Maybe that's not such a good idea. Uh, you, you might want a bond. You'd say, I think I'll just settle for 5% or whatever it is a year from the, the US government. Or maybe you'd rather have something tangible. I'd, I'd like a house. So I'll go and buy 
a house. All these decisions are decisions to transform cash into some other form of wealth that you hope will appreciate because cash doesn't. It depreciates because of inflation. All right. So that was uh, Neil Ferguson, professor of history at Harvard. Um, And where did the money go, Alex? Uh, We will answer that tomorrow. All right. We're going to bring you part two of our interview with Neil. And I think that's a wrap. That That is. is Planet Money. Thanks very much. And thanks for listening. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. That's 